Welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast. I'm producer Ruth Brown. Today I'm joined by the Office of Performance Evaluation Director Rakesh Mohan and OPE Senior Evaluator Casey Petty. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. On Monday, you went before the Joint Legislative Oversight Committee, JLOC, with a report on K-12 public school buildings. Rakesh, first, for listeners who may not know, can you talk to me about what is OPE's role in the state? Sure. Uh, The Office of Performance Evaluations, or OPE, is an independent agency of the legislature, uh, and it is overseen by the Joint Legislative Oversight Committee. The Joint Legislative Oversight Committee is the only standing committee of the legislature that's equally bipartisan in Idaho. Uh, And it has four members from the Senate, four members from the House, and uh, uh, four of those members uh, are Republicans and four of them are Democrats. It is co-chaired by uh, a Republican and a House uh, member uh, who uh, at this time is a, who is a Democrat and Republican is Senator, Senator Harris, Democrat Rep- uh, Representative Rubel. They alternate chairing the committee meetings. So their role on the committee is equal. Uh, and uh, the staff, including myself, we are all nonpartisan staff. So it has two, two important elements, uh, or actually three. We are nonpartisan. We are work for an equally bipartisan committee. We are an independent agency in a sense that once the legislature has given us the uh, work, there is no interference or influence by anybody else. We do the uh, entire study from the beginning to the end uh, by ourselves, and whatever we have in the report, it is our work, and we stand by that. Uh, and you play a role in offering recommendations, correct? But it's, um, I want to be clear, it's not the same as offering uh, suggestions for bills, that sort of thing. Yes, uh, we do not support or oppose any bills. Uh, we can help w- work with the legislator to draft a bill, but we do not uh, support or oppose a bill. And uh, th- in the report, we have recommendations for the agencies and also, and the agency recommendations are where they do not need any direction from the legislature or policymaker. They can fix things and modify things. But for, uh, for the legislature, we have recommendations that generally involve policy uh, discussions and, um, and may have impact on appropriations or changing the law. Uh, Casey, you began on Monday at JLOC by reviewing a Supreme Court decision in 2006 that found that uh, tools given to school districts were uh, largely inadequate. Uh, What changed in the legislature after that uh, decision and how did that play a role in school funding? Yeah, so that was a a really long um, court case that actually started in the, the late 1980s. And it was finalized in 2005 when the Supreme Court ruled that the tools given to school districts to fund buildings, uh, particularly buildings that are in need of immediate repair or replacement, uh, were inadequate. So school districts needed to rely on uh, bonds or debt in order to build a new school. And uh, the Supreme Court ruled that Uh, That was inadequate, and the legislature wasn't upholding its constitutional duty. So in 2006, the legislature uh, passed a big sweeping bill that established some new programs, um, one of which was a cooperative fund uh, that school districts are able to access if they have a building that is deemed unsafe. 
Um, that fund has only been used twice since then. So it's not exactly uh, something that's been frequently mentioned in the state or brought up in the state. Um, a lot of people don't know about that fund. Uh, another change was that uh, they required school districts to start submitting building maintenance plans to the state. And so school districts are required to uh, submit a 10-year maintenance plan um, to the Division of Building Safety and every five years an update, uh, which talks about which maintenance work has been done and uh, what maintenance work they're planning on doing in the next five years. Um, in addition to that, uh, the legislature changed some rules around access to the bond levy equalization support program, um, which assists school districts with uh, paying off the interest for a bond. Uh, and so in theory, it's to make it a little bit easier and a little bit cheaper for school districts to uh, get school bonds funded. Um, and then uh, the last change was uh, the state uh, created state match funds. So quick backstory, um, lottery dollars that are brought into the state, three eighths of those go towards uh, school building maintenance. Um, those lottery dollars are distributed to school districts on a per pupil basis. Uh, with state match dollars, uh, the legislature created the program that said, you know, each school is going to receive a minimum amount of dollars uh, in lottery dollars. And if that amount is not met, um, the state will step in and give an additional allocation to these school districts uh, to meet that minimum threshold. Those were the big changes. Another one was uh, a 2% allocation requirement, which I think we might get into later. I want to circle back to the maintenance plans. Idaho has roughly 650 schools within 115 school districts, as well as uh, 60 charter schools, 50, 60. You might, you probably know the number. Um, Casey, can you walk me through what you found regarding those schools' uh, maintenance plans and the submission rate of that? Yeah, so um, school districts are, you know, as I mentioned, required to submit those maintenance plans. And there's 115 school districts. Um, and in theory, you know, every five years, uh, DBS, the Division of Building Safety, should be receiving 115 plans. Um, we contacted uh, the Office of School Safety and Security, which at the time was uh, within DBS, um, to see, you know, what plans they have collected. And we received all of the plans collected from 2016 to 2020. So a five-year period in which a haunt, all 115 school districts should have submitted a plan. Uh, we found that only 33 plans were submitted. So not a great submit, <laughs> submission rate, um, definitely not all 115. Uh, and then when we looked at the plans, uh, we quickly realized that the contents of the plans varied greatly. You had some school districts that are larger school districts that had, you know, 115, 120 page reports. And in the reports, it would detail every school building, the conditions of the school building, when it was built, what maintenance needs to be done, and so on. And, so and then there were other smaller school districts that would have shorter reports that wouldn't get into uh, things such as the um, number of buildings they have even, or the uh, needed uh, maintenance. Um, it would It would really just be a quick overview of the uh, education system within that school district. 
And so at the beginning of this evaluation, uh, the plan was to use these maintenance reports as a baseline to figure out where schools are and what maintenance needed to be done. Um, but unfortunately, because of the low uh, rate of school districts submitting their plans and also the wide uh, range of responses in the plans, uh, we couldn't use them to make comparisons across school districts. So unless... Um Idahoans who perhaps are uh, regular watchers of JFAC, they, um, which of course is always a riveting uh, television show. I say that with, uh, with respect because I watch JFAC every morning. Um, can you walk me through uh, building maintenance allocations for school? You made uh, some points in your presentation that I found uh, interesting regarding uh, what Idaho allocates, the 2%. Yeah. Um, absolutely. So in 2006, one of the changes uh, to school building maintenance was uh, that school districts are required to submit two percent or required to allocate two percent of building replacement value on maintenance every year. Um, it's important to note that this is allocation. It's not expenditures. Uh, and so a school district can allocate the funds to be dedicated to use in future years. Um, it just needs allocation. Uh, to, to two specific funds. And uh, the way that building replacement value is calculated is uh, you take the total square footage of student-occupied buildings within a district and you multiply it by a cost factor. Um, the cost factor that's currently being used is $81.45. We found several issues with this 2% maintenance requirement. Uh, The first is that uh, the cost factor, that 8145, um, that's been the cost factor since 2008. Uh, if we're trying to get the replacement value for buildings and we're using a 14-year-old replacement cost factor, you're probably going to get um, building replacement values below what they actually would cost in today's uh, economy. Um, additionally, we found that that 2% requirement is below national standards. So the National Council on School Facilities uh, recommends that schools, uh, that school districts spend 7% of building replacement value on their buildings annually. So of that 7%, 3% goes towards things such as routine maintenance, buildings care, um, groundkeeping, uh, custodial services, all of that. And the remaining 4% is for capital costs. Um, you know, capital renewals and addressing deferred maintenance. Uh, in Idaho, that 2% encompasses both routine maintenance and capital costs. And, and another thing that we found was that school districts have different maintenance needs depending on where they are in their life cycle. And so having that flat 2% might be good for a newer school, but for a school that's 50, 60 years old that has capital renewal costs, that 2% uh, is most likely not going to be sufficient. You did make note, though, that neighboring states also don't allocate that 7%. It's a it's a steep price tag, right? Yeah, so that is the, the benchmark, the thresholds um, that is set by the National Council on School Facilities, but it's a pretty high benchmark. And so when looking at what Idaho spends um, for uh, replacement value percentage, it's around 2%, which is what is in Idaho code. Uh, neighboring states range from anywhere from, 
you know, three to four and a half percent. Uh, but none of the neighboring states hit that 7% benchmark. And so while Idaho is below the 7% and is lower than all neighboring states, uh, it is important to note that it's not the only state that is failing to meet that 7% benchmark. Let's talk about another source of funding. A tremendous number of schools in Idaho rely consistently on bonds and levies. Um, How has that changed since 2006, the use of bonds and supplemental levies? Yeah, so in 2006, there was a special legislative session um, in which the way that school districts are funded uh, radically changed. So prior to 2006, uh, schools received uh, discretionary funds um, per support unit from both a local maintenance and operations tax and also state funds. Uh, I'll quickly explain a support unit is kind of, it's kind of like a classroom. There's a formula that's in Idaho code. It's a certain amount of students. And uh, depending on which grade the students are in, you receive a support unit for each allotment of students. And so school districts would receive discretionary funds per support unit um, from two different sources. In 2006, in the special legislative session, Uh, the local maintenance and operations property tax levy was eliminated. And in its place, the state began distributing the entirety of the discretionary funds per support unit to school districts. Uh, In 2006, prior to the change, uh, school districts raised about $32,000 per, or excuse me, received about $32,000 per support unit uh, in discretionary funds. Of that just under 30000 was from that maintenance, uh, that local maintenance and operations property tax levy, and 2000 was from the state. So most of those funds were raised at the local level. Um, once the state began taking over the entire distribution, uh, things kind of changed. So initially in, in 2007, uh, discretionary funds held consistent with 2006 levels when it was just the state in 2007. Um, As the state entered the recession in 2008, uh, discretionary funds given to school districts decreased. Um, And that's actually still felt today. So in 2020, school districts received uh, just over $28,000 in discretionary funds. Um, And so they're actually receiving less in discretionary funds today than what they were receiving in 2006. And again, I, I should note that this is adjusting 2006 dollars to 2020 dollars. Okay. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it, it created this huge gap of discretionary funds. That's the big long backstory to now getting into bonds and levies. So this gap in discretionary funds uh, were offset by an increased usage in supplemental levies by school districts. Um, supplemental levies are a special property tax levy that uh, school districts can use to increase discretionary funds um, because money brought in by supplemental levy can be used however a district wants. Um, Supplemental levies last for two years and the majority of voters uh, need to approve the levy. In 2006, prior to the change in discretionary funding, uh, there were 57 school districts that raised uh, $99 million in supplemental levies. And again, that 99 million is in 2020 dollars. Flash forward to 2020, there's 92 school districts using supplemental levies, raising $214 million. Um, 
the number of school districts uh, using supplemental levies increased, but so too did the average supplemental levy amount. The average supplemental levy right now is is just over two million dollars, um, compared to like one point seven roughly in uh, two thousand six, and so the increased usage of supplemental levies has has led you know some discussion around well how has that impacted the ability for schools to pass school bonds? So school bonds, uh, again, need to be approved by voters. And uh, unlike supplemental levies that require that 50% majority, school bonds require a two-thirds majority, just like all bonds in the state have that two-third majority. And so the idea is, is that if every two years, you know, voters are asked to vote on uh, to increase their property taxes, to pay for a supplemental levy, well, then when a bond gets proposed, what are the impacts or the effects on voters? Are they going to not want to vote for this? Because in their minds, they just voted last year to increase their property taxes. Um, and so there were you know, concerns raised that the increased use in supplemental levies are impacting bonds. Uh, and we looked at that, and ultimately we found that um, the data is inconclusive, and primarily that's because almost all bonds are proposed in districts with an active supplemental levy. Uh, and so trying to parse out the data for just bonds and districts without supplemental levies is very difficult to do. Uh, and also there's other complications such as, you know, school bonds don't exist in a bubble. There's other local property tax levies that, you know, people might be thinking of other than supplemental levies when they vote for a school bond. Um, and also there's things such as, you know, political ideologies that can lead into whether or not a school bond passes or just the, the general uh, threshold for a community to uh, handle additional property tax. I think the two-thirds uh, support has been a problem for a lot of communities, not just for school bonds, but for other types of bonds. It's a, a jail or a new facilities plant or whatever it may be. I think you see it more in communities where residents are of lower income, which of course makes sense. Um, they simply don't have the cash to increase property taxes, not that they you know, don't want children to be educated, of course. Um, what issues does that two-thirds uh, majority requirement present for Idaho compared to some neighboring states that don't have the two-thirds uh, requirement? Idaho has the highest school bond threshold in the United States. Um, most neighboring states, uh, actually all neighboring states besides Washington, require a simple majority for a bond to pass. Washington, it's 60 percent. And what happens, and we can see school bond elections here in Idaho, is it's more difficult for school bonds to pass. You know, from 2011 to 2020, uh, there were 120 bond elections, uh, excuse me, school bond elections. Uh, of those, 49 passed. And that's at that two-thirds bond threshold. If we were to lower uh, the bond threshold to Washington 60%, 72 bonds of the 120 would have passed. And if we would have lowered it even further to that 50% simple majority of most neighboring states, 97 of the 120 school bonds would have passed. So nearly double the amount of bonds would have passed over the last 10 years at that lower threshold. And so what we're seeing is bonds aren't having an issue getting over that simple majority. 
or even really getting to around that 60%. Where we're seeing friction in bond elections is getting from that 60% up to that 66.67%. And the levies only require a majority vote, so 50% plus one, so they're more likely to slide through. Yes, so supplemental levies only require a 50% majority, and uh, most pass. I believe um, I don't have the data for all supplemental levy elections because, again, they're every two years. There's there's about 180 you know uh, elections every four years for supplemental levies, um, but from 2017 to 2020, I think there was about. Uh, five or six that failed. And so you're looking at, you know, 180 plus that pass and about five or six that fail. So it's it's pretty easy for supplemental levies to get over that 50% threshold. I want to shift the conversation to charter schools. Charter schools are obviously a newer concept in Idaho than um, your average public school. But what did you find regarding maintenance or deferred maintenance uh, in charter schools? Yeah, so charter schools are new. The, the, the program is, is, I believe it was 1998 when uh, the charter school program began. And the number of charter schools are extremely, are <laughs> increasing rapidly. So uh, over the last 10 years, the number of charter schools and students in charter schools have doubled. Um, what we found is, uh, is that charter school administrators uh, reported better conditions within their schools than school district administrators. And so we sent out a survey to all 115 school districts and to 59 charter schools. Um, We excluded seven charter schools from our survey because they are virtual online only charter schools and they don't have student occupied buildings. Uh, In our survey to school districts, we asked them to rate conditions of school by school type. And nearly 60% across elementary school, middle school and high school said that their buildings were either fair or poor. So there's deferred maintenance, there's needed upgrades at these buildings. In that same question to charter school administrators, no charter school administrator said that their building was poor and only 14% said fair. And so they're primarily good or excellent uh, ratings for their buildings. And so we found that the conditions of the buildings are better as far as looking at things like needed upgrades and deferred maintenance. Um, but we also found that charter school buildings, you know, have some things on the horizon that do need to be addressed. Uh, charter school administrators said that um, they need additional buildings uh, to accommodate the number of students that they expect to have within 10 years. Um, in a follow-up questionnaire, 44% of charter school administrators said that they do not have the capacity to accommodate the number of students that they expect to have in 10 years. Um, additionally, In that follow-up questionnaire, we found that 63% of charter school administrators say that they lack um, specialized instruction spaces for students. Uh, Things such as computer labs or gyms or special education rooms, libraries. Um, And a lot of this is because charter schools, uh, many of them did not build their own building. They moved into an existing building and they're trying to retrofit it as a school. And so while the school may be or the building itself may be in good condition, it doesn't have the rooms that, you know, a typical middle school or high school would have. And so those are certainly challenges that that can be addressed um, and and should be addressed. 
coming away from this, what were some of the uh, recommendations that OPE issued for JLOC? Yeah, so the the first recommendation or first policy consideration that we have was around those 10 and five-year maintenance reports. And so again, we found most school districts do not submit their maintenance reports, but more concerning, we found that nothing is done with those maintenance reports that are submitted. Uh, they're filed away and uh, there's no action taken. They're not read, nothing's really done with them. And uh, part of that is because um, the Division of Building Safety who would receive the plans, they don't deal with maintenance or building uh, asset like management or anything like that. They're more concerned with fire codes and building codes and ensuring that the building is safe, not ensuring that a building is, you know, on top of deferred maintenance. And so our first policy uh, consideration is that the legislature should identify a better place for those um, maintenance plans to go. Once that is identified, uh, the legislature should work with that office or agency or whomever to devise a purpose for these plans. And so there is a use for these tenure maintenance plans that need to be submitted. And if that doesn't happen, potentially the legislature should go back and, and look at this section of Idaho code and revise or remove as needed. Uh, the second policy consideration um, that we had, which was the biggest policy consideration, is for the legislature to commission a statewide facility condition assessment. Um, so the last time that the state did a facility condition assessment of school buildings was in 1993. Uh, that assessment found just under $700 million in needed upgrades of facilities, um, which is $1.3 billion in 2020 dollars. So it's a significant amount. And uh, without a similar assessment today, it's really hard to grasp what the financial cost is to address all deferred maintenance and upgrade needs in our buildings. Um, additionally, the last facility, facility condition assessment was before the charter school program. And so having a new facility condition assessment could include these charter schools. And so we could get a better grasp on, you know, things such as, have enough space for their students in 10 years or do they like what additional specialized instruction spaces are needed um, the final policy consideration in the reports is uh, about that two percent allocation requirement and just uh, just says that you know potentially that needs to be revisited uh, the cost factor and also the um, allocation requirement percentage you know whether that's changed from two percent to higher um, but there is a, a, caveat, a caveat with changing those maintenance allocation requirements, and that is, is that's going to increase school district budgets, and under current fu funding mechanisms, most of that budget will be coming from discretionary funds for the school districts. What was, uh, I know I saw Representative Troy was especially concerned. What are some of the reactions you've heard from uh, lawmakers after seeing the report? Yeah, so uh, I think the biggest one during the presentation especially was the, the fact that nothing is done with those 10-year maintenance plans. Um, that was pretty, you know, surprising, I think, to a lot of people. Um, and I think uh, another surprising uh, thing with, with the, the report is just how difficult it is to come up with uh, an accurate number 
um, or an accurate dollar amount for what, you know, the deferred maintenance is. And that's because, you know, our school district system is, is ginormous. It's, it's 46 million square feet of buildings. And it's very difficult to, you know, just use things such as uh, self-assessed survey ratings and then turn that into a dollar amount that can be used for decision making. And so um, a facility condition assessment, um, legislators are pretty surprised to hear that it usually takes, you know, two to four years to complete. I believe Wyoming did one in, in about three years uh, recently. And uh, Idaho, when we did our 1993 assessment, it took two years. And uh, it typically takes a team of, you know, 20, 30 people uh, to do the assessments because they have to go around and inspect all the buildings. And so I think those were the, the biggest surprises. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily surprising that, you know, the conditions in our schools are, you know, the, the state that they are in. Um, I think most people are pretty well aware of, you know, challenges to funding schools. Um, and so I think those would be the, the biggest surprises. Ruth, I think uh, one of the other surprises was that um, the factor that they used uh, uh, is was the replacement factor that was set in 2008 uh, uh, and nothing has changed. Uh, it, it has not even been adjusted for inflation. And then uh, not knowing whether 2% allocation is the uh, the right amount uh, or sufficient amount or not. So I think those things were um, were surprising to uh, committee members. And if just the fact that nothing, ha the last time it was looked at it, these things was 1993. I appreciate both of your time, Rakesh Mohan, Casey Petty. Thank you so much, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ruth. Take care. Take care. For more information on the Office of Performance Evaluations or to see their report on K-12 schools or any other reports they've done, visit legislature.idaho.gov OPE. Thanks for joining us. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho by the Friends of Idaho Public Television, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hi, I'm Marcia Franklin, the producer and host of Dialogue. For more than 25 years, we've been bringing you conversations that matter. More than 150 of those conversations are with writers, and now you can take them with you wherever you go, while you're walking, around the house, or in the car. Just search for Dialogue with Marsha Franklin on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms. And remember to subscribe so that new shows download automatically. Enjoy.